Good morning, church family. I want to extend my welcome again to you if you're visiting with us this morning. It is a joy to get to open God's Word today and to get to continue our study in the book of Exodus, and more specifically, in our study of the law of God in the Ten Commandments. And so if you have a Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 20. I was marveling this week at how glorious God is, even just in the small things, like in being a writer. How amazing is it that he can encapsulate his heart, his character, and what he requires for the morality of all mankind in 10 little short phrases. I mean, we looked at his command to not murder because he is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so he's calling us to be like him. Uh, Last week we saw that he forbids adultery because he is a God who is faithful and holy. And because he is a God who is self-giving and rich in lavish grace, he gives us this morning the eighth commandment. So in honor of the reading of God's word, please stand with me. We are in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 20. This is the word of the Lord. Let's receive it with trembling. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Let's pray. Father, Lord, please come by your spirit. Would you minister to the hearts of your people? Would you convict us where we are in sin We praise you for your law that is holy and righteous and good. We reject all forms of lawlessness that would seek to come out from underneath your good word. And we reject trying to obey these things in our own strength. We praise you that you have atoned for our iniquities in Christ and that you have given us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can become like him. Would you make us like him in this, Father? In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, I'm curious what you think of when you hear this commandment. Maybe you haven't given it much thought before. Maybe your first thought is that you wish that the government would heed it, that they should not steal, right? Uh, Our country actually was founded uh, in kind of this beginnings of being taxed without representation. And a group of people on this side of the pond felt like it was stealing. And so we did something about it. And here we are as our own nation. I actually have a vague memory from my childhood. I tried to call my mom this morning and get details, but she screened me. Um, And I remember returning one evening to our house, and it had been broken into. And so I had these kind of snapshot images in my mind. The broken glass in the basement where they entered, or blood on the pillow in the living room where apparently they got cut on entering. Or going into the master bedroom and seeing it disheveled and um, dresser drawers opened and things had been taken. So I've got this memory in my mind of our house being robbed when I was younger. Maybe you've never been robbed or even stolen, stolen anything as you might define it. But if you look around, stealing is everywhere. You may not be a sports fan, but real big in the news right now is Michigan's sign stealing. Penn State guys love it. Um, but 
basically they're accused of actually sending people to go observe other people's games where they're motioning in what plays are and they're doing recon on what signs they're using for what plays and then using that to gain a competitive advantage. And a big consequence was just handed down yesterday for sign stealing. There's talk, regardless of what your opinion is on it, of stolen elections. The top five crimes in the U.S. every year all have to do with theft or stealing of some kind. In fact, theft makes up of 60% of all crimes in the U.S. This one will stand out to Dan and Brenda. Shoplifting is our nation's number one property crime. According to the National Association of Shoplifting Prevention, more than 50 billion worth of goods are stolen from retailers each year. Just imagine that. They said that one out of every 11 people do it, and they're only caught about one in every 50 times. So the commandment comes to us. What does God say about all of this prominence of stealing in our culture or in your daily life? Well, he says, first, you shall not steal. Why? Well, this commandment forbids taking what does not belong to you and what God has not ordained for you. We'll get to that again in a bit. But at its heart, stealing is seeking selfish gain over that which is good for your neighbor. You're prioritizing yourself over them and acting in your own strength to take what does not belong to you. This commandment in itself actually affirms the right to private property. Now we're going to see how we should think about our own personal goods uh, later in the message, but you can't steal something if somebody does not own it. And so you do have a right to own and possess what God has entrusted to you to order as he has designed. Just as with each of the commandments, we see that God not only gives us the negative commandment, but what is the positive affirmation of the commandment is implied here. So this commandment's not only saying don't steal, but actually preserve the value of others' property. And so we're actually going to see that spelled out in more detail in chapters 21 and 22. So we won't spend time on it here. But almost everybody agrees that stealing is wrong. And most people think that they're completely innocent. One survey that Barna conducted, uh, 86% of adults said this is one command where they're completely off the hook, like they've never broken this one. But if we actually consider the forms that theft can take, I think you might find that you don't get out as squeaky clean as you might initially imagine. So I want to consider very briefly with you the wide reaches of this commandment. When God says not to steal, he's forbidding you from commonly understood thefts. So what you might think of as theft or larceny or burglary or shoplifting, embezzlement of funds, of course. But he also forbids cheating of any kind, including on your taxes. So there's a difference between getting a tax advisor and playing by the government's rules and being wise and savvy with money. And it's another thing altogether to report things dishonestly for your own gain. Giving or receiving money under the table and not reporting it for tax purposes would be an example of cheating taxes. Surfing the internet when you're on the clock for work would be an example of theft from your employer. 
this may resonate with only some of you, but constantly working to get something for nothing. So I'm not talking about being shrewd. I'm talking about you always want to get a good deal on things, but you're never willing to pay anybody for their hard work or what things are actually worth. So it's, it's a spirit that is always seeking your own advantage and not the good of your neighbor. In its spirit violates the eighth commandment. Martin Luther said it like this, we break the eighth commandment whenever we take advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in loss to him. So this is not talking about the arm's length transaction of goods and services and people making a just profit. We're talking about actually taking advantage of people for your own gain. Not giving your employees a fair wage or not, not charging excessive interest. So excessive is an important word. Interest, not bad. According to the Bible, Jesus said you ought to have invested this money and made interest from it. So we know that interest charging is not wrong in itself, but charging excessive interest or charging interest on money that you give to the poor would be an example of stealing according to the Eighth Commandment. Insurance fraud. Making a claim deceptively, not repairing the property that you reported the claim on and pocketing the cash. If you're doing it deceptively and dishonestly, it's breaking the Eighth Commandment. Dishonest marketing. Man, we all fall prey to this, right? That package is so big, and then inside it's got like this much in it. There's ways of dishonesty in our dealings that are a violation of this commandment. We're stealing from people. All that music that you burned on disc when you were in high school was stealing. Plagiarism. Me ripping a sermon off the internet and preaching it to you and acting like it was mine, you'd be stealing. I don't do that, just so we're clear. <laughs> Not like a real example. Last time, it's probably going to step on a little bit of toes, but it's okay. If you share a subscription account with people and you're like a full-blown adult and like you and a couple of your friends share a Netflix account, are you doing to them what you would have them do to you if you were running that same company? Or are you stealing? And I think the spirit of this law includes frivolous materialism. If, if God has entrusted to you everything that you have and you spend his money in ways that he has not ordained or outside of his will, then you're actually stealing from the Lord in not ordering your life according to his will. You're making money decisions based on what you want and not on what he wants. We'll get to more on that in a second. So I think John Calvin sums it up well when he says, This then is the rule of charity, that everyone's rights should be safely preserved, and that no one should do to another what he would not have done to himself. It follows, therefore, that not only are those thieves who secretly steal the property of others, but those also who seek for gain from the loss of others, or who accumulate wealth by unlawful practices, and are more devoted to their private advantage than to equity. If you, he, he's affirming that example that we gave us a minute ago. If you have a heart that is always concerned for your own advantage over love to neighbor, then we're committing thievery of heart, right? God is after 
integrity in us, honesty. He's, this commandment speaks against greed and calls us to seek the well-being and the advantage of everyone and not merely to look out for ourselves. So it's the classic biblical command to do to others what we would have them do to us, to treat their companies as we would have people treat our companies. God delights in truth in the innermost being. When you're alone, in the, in the quiet of interactions or dealings that nobody would know about, he wants there to be truth and integrity and honesty. And he's also given us means to make it right. So we're not going to spend a long time here, but there is a way where if you are convicted that you have stolen and you are called to make it right. We're going to see these laws again affirmed in Exodus 22. But God calls us to repent and make restitution. So if somebody stole, for example, ox or sheep in the Old Testament, they killed it or sold it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So the New Testament example of this is Zacchaeus when he comes and he calls on the name of Jesus for salvation. He invites him into his home. And there is an example of repentance and keeping with faith. Zacchaeus stands and he says to the Lord Jesus, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. Now, he had been a tax collector. He had committed extortion and stolen from a lot of people. So this is his repentance. Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What was Jesus' response to Zacchaeus going from stealing from people to making restitution according to the law? Well, he says to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So you need to hear the gospel in the midst of all of our examples of our law-breaking or our stealing is that Jesus came to seek and to save you, not just to forgive you of your sins and leave you in them, but to actually save you out of your law-breaking and into his righteousness. So we can't forget here that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified in between who? Two thieves. And one of them calls on the name of Jesus for salvation. And what does Jesus say to him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. There's no theft. doesn't matter if you've committed the greatest Italian job-style heist in history. There is no theft that you have committed that cannot be forgiven by the blood of Christ. But when we place our trust in Christ and he makes us new by his Holy Spirit, he calls us to a life of integrity and honesty and walking by the grace that Jesus supplies. And he saves us into his righteousness. And so that's why Jesus says, salvation's come to this house. Zacchaeus was justified by his works, not in that his restitution made him righteous, but it was an outworking of his faith, like James talks about Rahab and Abraham, where he is shown to be righteous. His faith is shown to be real in the way that he makes restitution for what he had stolen. So faith without works is dead. And feeling sorry for stealing without restitution is not repentance. You're not, it's not repentance if you just have remorse over it. God wants you to actually make it right with a consequence uh, so that we would actually repent and turn from our stealing. 
So I want to turn in the remainder of our time together to the positive applications of the commandment. So each one of these, I've got three, it says don't steal, but instead do this. The first is don't steal, but be content. This is a call to trust God as your portion and as your provider. David says in Psalm 16, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now this idea of a lot was the casting of lots where they would actually, when they were dividing up the land, they'd cast a lot and they'd say, all right, this first piece of land goes to this. And, and they would know, especially they had the casting of lots before the giving of the Holy Spirit. And they would know that God's providence presided over the casting of the lots. And so whatever you received as your portion or as your land was given to you by the hand of God. And so David is saying, Lord, you're, you're my portion. You are my treasure over everything, and I trust that whatever you have provided comes by your hand, and I, I trust you. So like all sin, stealing is primarily an offense against God. It is essentially us saying to him, I'm not content with what you have ordained for me or with your timing on possessing what I believe that I need or what I want. And I don't trust you to provide for what I need or for what I want. So I'm going to go get it in my own strength or by my own wisdom. I'm going to act in my own power for my own self-interest. And it's also against God in violating what he's ordained and given to other people. So I thought about this example. Imagine that you were providing Christmas for somebody that you love. Take your children, for example, and you gave them all gifts according to what you thought would be a blessing to them. And then you found out that one of your kids stole the present of the other kid for himself. That communicates two things to you. Number one, he's not content with the gift that you gave to him, what you had ordained and provided for him. But he's also sinning against you in taking from his sibling and and dishonoring you in taking what you meant for somebody else. So these are the two ways that our thieving is a sin against God. We're not content with what he's ordained for us, and we're taking what he's ordained from other people, for other people. So we're called instead to trusting God as our provider. Consider the words from Matthew 6. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus says the world anxiously worries about having enough money to cover their basic needs. But he says, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. And so what he calls us to as believers is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So stealing what is not ours in all the forms we talked about is a godless approach to obtaining what you do not have. We ought instead to pray and, and go to the Lord and say, God, I, I, I am I'm tempted to cheat here, to be dishonest here, and all of it is an expression of my distrust in you, and I want to believe your word when you say that you know what I need, and I want to trust you. We need to believe that 
he means it when he says he will not withhold what is good from those who walk uprightly and that he will provide for us. When we trust God as our provider and believe scriptures like Philippians 4.19, that my God will provide all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, then our fears around not having enough dissipate. And the temptation to take what is not ours loses its power because we're trusting in the promise of God. If he did not spare his own son but freely delivered him over for us all, then how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And if all things are mine in Christ and he has not ordained for it to look how I want it to look, then I can pray and wait on the Lord and be patient and trust him that he will provide what I need. Loving money will lead you into a snare, and hoping in it will always disappoint you. That's why Paul says to Timothy, instruct those who are rich not to set our hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. If you have wealth, don't set your heart on it. We'll come to a a better uh, vision of how we should steward what God has provided to us in a moment. But we have to begin by learning contentment in Christ. This is the context of that famous verse that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. It's in the context of learning the secret of contentment that Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So here's kind of the first self-evaluating question for you as a church this morning. Is do you trust the Father's care for you? Will you trust him as your portion, as your provider? And will you lean on Jesus and his strength to be enough for you in any circumstance? To actually help you to be content with what you have. The second positive affirmation, so we're called not to steal, but to be content. The second would be don't steal, but work. This may be a surprising one to you, but Ephesians 4.28 says this. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the first contrast in this verse to stealing is doing honest work. We're called to earn a living by doing honest work. So don't dishonestly steal, but honestly labor. So this is a call to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to have integrity, not only to not be lazy or to gain, seeking gain dishonestly, the get-rich-quick schemes instead of hard, honest work, getting money by gambling and not by work, getting money by begging people and not by work, getting money by uh, relying on handouts or welfare when you could be working and not by work. Paul writes the same thing to the Thessalonian church. Many of them had grown passive because they thought, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, so I'm just not going to work. And they were freeloading. And Paul rebukes them. He says, you should stop stealing in all of its forms, and you should do honest work with your own hands. 
Paul affirms the same in Colossians 3 when he commends bondservants to obey their masters in everything, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So this means we live our lives before the face of God and we do work with him for him, not at a certain degree when those who are employers are around and then that degree stops or we're somehow dishonest or passive or lazy when they're not around. We work as unto the Lord in the fear of the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. As your reward, You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So, He's saying here, working by way of eye service and not unto the Lord is wrongdoing. And the Lord will repay you according to your wrongdoing or your righteousness. So what does this look like? To work honestly in the fear of God and heartily for the pleasure of God. First, very simply, don't steal money at work. So don't report working hours that you did not work. Don't report working overtime if you didn't work overtime. Don't work overtime when it's not needed to be done and you're actually just wanting time and a half. Don't take things from work that you wouldn't want your employers to know about. So if, 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 the, if the break room is there and the supplies are there and they're like, yes, take it, then take it. But don't take stuff that you were like, want to make sure that, oh man, I, I hope they don't find out about this. Or I don't know if they're cool with this, but I think that they probably are. It's for us anyways. And we kind of deceive ourselves into pilfering little goods from work. We, we mentioned this. Don't evade taxes. Don't treat a reimbursement account differently than you treat your own money. These are ways that we could work honestly with our own hands. But working heartily to the Lord also implies don't steal time. So we talked about not just like surfing the internet while you're at work, but I read in a commentary this week that employee theft of time and property costs American businesses and their investors more than $200 billion a year. This affects all of us. According to some estimates, as much as one-third of a product's cost goes to cover the various forms of stealing that occur on its way to the marketplace as a kind of theft surcharge. So every time you buy anything, you're paying about 33% more than you would otherwise if nobody stole. If you didn't steal all the different kinds of thievery that go on the way from its first manufacturing all the way to the shelves. And that includes how you spend your time at work. So let us not steal, but let us work honestly with our own hands for the glory of God. And let's remember who we're really working for. When he says we, we work because we fear the Lord. We work for the glory of Christ because Christ is all and we fear him and we love him and we want our lives to tell the truth about Jesus in everything that we do. And lastly, don't steal, but give. I want you to pay attention to the last part of verse 4 because if we were going to kind of take a survey of just our church and we said, why do you work? I think we'd have a lot of really good answers that are right and good and true. Like I work to provide for my family. I work so that because it's the, it's the right thing to do. I was made to work and work is good and it honors God and it's an outlet for me to do what I love and all kinds of good answers. But I wonder how many times we get the answers so I have something to share. But this is what Paul says. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Jerry Bridges is with the Lord now. He says that there are kind of three basic attitudes that you could have toward possessions. The first is, what's yours is mine, and I'll take it. That's the attitude of a thief. The second, and most common, is what's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. So that's, that's just sort of like your garden variety, self-oriented attitude towards stuff. The third is what's mine is God's, and I'll share it which is the godly attitude. So as Christians, under kind of this heading of let's not steal but give, we're called to work for generosity to others. You can see this in a couple of passages in Acts. In Acts 20, verse 34 through 35, Paul's talking to the Ephesians elders, and he says, you yourselves know that with these hands, these hands ministered to my needs and to those who are with me. So Paul worked bivocationally to take a burden off the church, for the, the church is called to support its ministers. You're, you're called to give generously so that those who labor over you in the Lord get their income from the gospel. That is your, your responsibility. We talk about it in the membership covenant, that we want to give generously to the work here so that we can flourish as a church and actually build this thing together. But Paul worked bivocationally, incidentally like your pastors do, so it takes a burden off the church so that our whole livelihood is not completely dependent on you and the church and that we actually work and minister to our own needs. But Paul goes above that and says, I actually worked so that I can minister to my own needs and so that I could provide for other people who were doing gospel ministry with me. So he literally went out and worked a job and came back and provided for his friends with it. He said, in all these things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. May we believe it. It is more blessed of God to give generously of yourself than it is to receive a gift. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we have the example of the early church. It says, A full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is glorious. Now, a lot of conservatives hear this and they think, sounds a lot like socialism to me, but I want to make sure you understand the difference because this is a vision for kingdom generosity and giving. This is people sold their houses. I got a lot of equity in my house, but if I sold it, I'd give it right to somebody else. So, don't, so all of us have pretend equity in our houses right now. But just imagine for a second that you owned a house and it was a pretend, and you sold it, and your response, your heart was, man, I want to come give this to the work of God and so that everybody who has needs can share in this blessing that God has given to me. That is remarkable. The difference between that and socialism is that it's voluntary, right? This is not, socialism is the government enforcing stealing of your possessions, and making it so that everyone has basically the same, like nobody owns anything and we all have the same basic standard of living. But it says it aims at providing for everyone, 
but it's a failed social experiment that leads to communism and the oppression of people. So socialism is stealing. This is not what the Bible commends. But here we have this kingdom vision for generosity where believers are voluntarily and generously giving of themselves so that there's not a needy person among us. We actually are loving our neighbor and we're not content to see this guy have no job and I'm doing very well at work and we're all just coming together and worshiping on a Sunday. That's not Christianity. The, the Christian ethic is I see a brother in need and I want to love my neighbor as myself. I want to treat them in the midst of their need as I would want to be treated in the midst of my need so that there's, there's no needy person among us because everything that we have belongs to the Lord and we belong to each other and so we love each other well. But we last see that this call not to steal but to give relates not just to how we give to others but to God himself. I want to close with this reminder that as we're seeking not to steal but to honor God with our possessions, that God owns everything. And I don't mean that in just sort of like an ethereal Christian platitude sense, like, yes, God owns everything, and then I just continue to live like I own everything. There's none of us that, nobody in the room would say, check yes or no, God owns everything. I don't think anybody in this room would be like, no, I mean, we kind of share, right? God owns everything. You actually have nothing to your name that belongs to you. So we just need to make concrete things really concrete, okay, sometimes. Because you're like, well, what about this? So just so we're clear, your house belongs to God. You, your car belongs to God. Your income belongs to God. Your children belong to God. If, if you own it, you have been given it as a steward of what belongs to God. We read this this week in the book of Job. If you're doing the reading plan, God asked Job, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So that's why I say that example of frivolous materialism is stealing from God because everything belongs to him. So if you take what belongs to him and use it as he does not ordain and use it for yourself, it's called stealing because we've, you've been entrusted with what you have as a steward for the glory of Christ and for the building of his kingdom and not merely for the building of your own kingdom. So where we see this most strikingly clear, and I've got five minutes left, so I need you to lean in. Okay, I'm, it's my promise to you, and I want you to give me all of it. Because if you mishear this, you're going to hear legalism. You're going to hear, I don't know, this sounds harsh, but this, this, our church needs to hear this. And the church of Jesus Christ in our country needs to hear this. In Malachi chapter 3, God likens not giving toward his worship, toward his ministry and his work in the world, to robbing him. So listen to Malachi chapter 3. This is verse 6 through 10. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? 
I want you to pause right here and consider this. Here these people from the mouth of God said, you're actually guilty of robbing me. And they had no idea. It's not like one of those things where God's like, you need to repent. And you have that like, you know, like when I say, hey, you shall not steal and you kind of know. This wasn't one of those situations where it was like obvious to them that it's possible for you to actually have been stealing from God and have no idea. And so he says, I want you to return to me. They said, where do we return from? What have we been doing? He said, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Again, clueless. He said, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that they may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. There's a lot of ways you could read that. You might even think, wow, he's preaching that so that we'll give more money. And everybody gets all like, when it, and it, whenever any time we talk about money, not necessarily here, but just in the church as a whole, because it's an idol for us. But hear the grace of God in this. This is the only time in the Bible where God says, put me to the test in anything. And his heart is to bring his people into his blessing. And so he says, I want you to trust me and, and to actually put your money where your mouth is that you trust me and I want you to watch and I'm going to bless you like you wouldn't understand. Now, this is not some prosperity gospel. So I said, listen carefully. This is not give God a dollar and he'll give you back 10. And you give the dollar not because you love God, but because you love money. That's not the heart that God's talking about. He's not saying, I've got a way for you to continue to love money more than me. He's saying, when you prioritize meeting your own needs. In Haggai, it was building their own houses while the temple left was lying in ruins. And he's saying, you're prioritizing yourself or even meeting your own needs over my house and my ministry, and you need to repent. And when you repent, I won't just say, well, you're just doing what you ought to have done. I will pour out blessing of heaven on you. You won't believe it. Now, does the New Testament command tithing to us? No, it doesn't. It commends kingdom generosity. It commends lavish generosity in light of the cross of Christ who gave us everything. And so We are now giving on this side of the cross where God demonstrated his love toward us and giving us the greatest gift that's ever been given in the history of the universe. But we ought to ask ourselves, because Jesus commenced tithing in the New Testament. He's rebuking the Pharisees because they were tithing off of like every little thing and big thing and neglecting the weightier matters of justice and equity and righteousness But in his rebuke, Jesus says, you were right in tithing on everything, but you ought to have done these things too, right? You ought to not have just neglected these weightier matters of the law while doing what you ought to have done. So giving in all the scriptures has always been a matter of worship 
and shows us where our heart is. So the question for us is, should the poorest, should the requirement of the poorest Israelite under a dispensation of the covenant that was before Christ, and they didn't even have full revelation of all the glory and goodness that would be lavished on us in Jesus. Should the poorest Israelite give more than us who have been set free into the glory and, and grace of God and been lavished with the gift of God's Holy Spirit? And should we do less towards sustaining the worship of God in the world? And so my call on us, because I think, I don't examine people's giving. I just think if, if all of us were kind of, if we just viewed this as like the minimum of like, okay, I'm going to give the first fruits of everything God gives to me to steward. I know I, none of it belongs to me. And so I'm just going to start by giving a tithe right off the top. I know I want to be, I want to have money set aside to be generous and ready to share I want to be able to meet pressing needs, but right off the start, before I take care of all these other things first and then give God my leftovers, I'm just going to start by saying, God, I trust you. And I'm just going to use 10% as a floor. It's not a requirement. I'm just saying, I'm probably going to give more than that because the poorest Israelite gave more than that. And here we are in the wealthiest nation that's ever existed on the face of the planet. And we worship the Lord Jesus Christ who's on his throne and I don't want to deceive myself into thinking that I'm living under some grace when actually I've just got a heart that's laden with distrust and greed. And so I claim grace, but at the bottom, it's just, I don't trust you. That feels scary. What would it look like if we all said, God, we are going to trust you in this. We will not in this church be guilty of robbing God. We are going to give him of the first fruits of what we have toward the work of this ministry. And we're going to see the church built up in Brattleboro and the kingdom of Christ expand. And we're all going to play our part and do it with generosity and gladness. And we just watch as God stays faithful to his promise and he blesses us for it. And you go from, man, I never gave because I was so worried about myself and concerned with my own needs but when I started giving, all of a sudden I started trusting God and you wouldn't believe how he's blessed me. And now I don't, I'm not anxious anymore because I've seen time and time again, I've tested God in this like he asked me to. And over and over again, he showcased his sufficiency when I trusted him first. And so may that be our heart. And all of this in light of the gospel of the grace of God, because Jesus, for your sake, became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich in him. This is the gospel. And all of how we steward the resources that God has given us either lies about the gospel or tells the truth about the gospel and puts Christ on display. He has become my treasure and my portion, and I trust him. I trust him as my portion, and I trust him as my provider. I'm going to be content in whatever he ordains, I'm going to work hard for the glory of God so I have something to share with others and so that I can give generously into the kingdom of God. And I'm going to do it as an exercise of faith and worship because Christ has already forgiven me of all of my sin and has given me his spirit so that I can live a life that's in keeping with the gospel. May it be so in us for the glory of his name. Pray with me, please.
Father, we thank you for all the ways that you've revealed your heart for us in your word. Lord, there is a way for the enemy to come in and just make people feel accused or condemned when your spirit means to convict us. The heart of the matter is trusting you. Will we trust you enough not to steal? Will we trust you enough to give and to seek you first, your kingdom and your righteousness, and trust that everything else will be added to us? Lord, I pray that all over this church you would bring healing and repentance where there has been unbelief, trusting ourselves over you, not trusting your heart for us as a father. God, we want to be obedient in these things. We want to give generously and lavishly and be used of you to build your church and to meet pressing needs around us. Your word says you multiply seed to the sower. And so will you find us sowing? And then will you multiply and bless this church as we are sold out to honoring you in whatever you provide? Lord, please keep us from stealing in all of its forms. Give us integrity and honesty in the hidden places of our hearts and give us a genuine concern and care for the good of our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen.